and then it gets shared on social media and people begin reacting to the clip that maybe they didn't even watch. What they're actually reacting to is the label of the person, the identity of the person. And you're not really even understanding what it is they're saying. If you understood what they were trying to say, you might still find them profoundly wrong, but maybe you would at least recognize them as a human being. That is Steve Inskeep. I'm Margaret Sullivan, and this is American Crisis, a podcast that looks at the question of whether journalism can help to save democracy through the lens of Watergate and January 6, 2021. By the way, all our episodes live over at margaretsullivan.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can also support the show there or sign up for free, so each episode of American Crisis lands right in your email. That's margaretsullivan.substack.com. I'm especially happy to have Steve with me today on the podcast because as the longtime host of NPR's Morning Edition, he's one of the most famous audio voices in America and also someone who has been a longtime practitioner and someone who really deeply believes in bridging divides. So because we are at a time in our country in which the divides are very broad and deep, it is particularly interesting to talk to him. And we plumbed those questions in the context of his book, which is not about Watergate or January 6th, but about Lincoln and how that very successful president managed to bridge the divides and get things done in an America that was perhaps equally divided as the one we have today. So pretty good discussion of some compelling topics at a different time in history. Welcome to American Crisis, the podcast. Steve Inskeep, very, very pleased to have you here and very happy to be able to discuss your new book, which is coming out in early October, if I'm right, called Differ yeah. We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America which seems extraordinarily timely right now, even though it's a century and a half old. So I guess I'd like to start off by just asking you how you came to write this book and whether you agree that it's gotten to be particularly timely right now. Oh, yeah. It feels more timely to me all the time. But Lincoln is a subject that's been on my mind since I was a kid, uh, which of course is true of a lot of people. I grew up in Indiana where he spent the bulk of his youth. And so when you grow up in Indiana, you learn a lot about Lincoln. Uh, you play with Lincoln logs. You end up uh, reading uh, children's books about Lincoln. You're taught about him in school. And of course, that's true to a greater or lesser extent almost anywhere in America. As I've written history in the last few years, the last decade or so, uh, 19th century history particularly, I've repeatedly come across Lincoln. He's been a minor character in a couple of my earlier books, but I wanted to go directly at him. I had a notion to tell his life story through his encounters with people who differed with him, because I thought initially that might express kind of the diversity of America at that time. There are people of different backgrounds, different classes, different viewpoints, different races, different genders who dealt with Lincoln in different ways. But I realized that it 
really is a story of something sharper than that. And that is Lincoln's efforts as a politician to manage people who disagreed with him, who had a different view of the world than he did, who were way more racist than he was, or who thought he was a racist, or had just different views of slavery than he did, or different ways to attack slavery. And I've ended up telling his whole life story through a series of these face-to-face meetings that he had with people, which does feel really contemporary to this moment when we have a divided country and people are trying to figure out how to unite enough people to bring the country through. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. And how do you think Lincoln's political acumen and his, you know, his unusual ability that you lay out in the book to communicate I mean, do we have that now? Do you see anyone who has those abilities? Or was he truly singular in American history? Do you even see any echoes of that among politicians or other leaders or, you know, leaders of communities? Do you sometimes think, ah, that's, you know, there's somebody who really is very skilled at the same very crucial ability? I think that we have people who have this ability, and I guess we should define what we're talking about. It's an ability to look at the person across the table from you who just has a different view of the world than you do and try to get some value out of them, some use out of them, even though you think they are very wrong. What I think we have today, and Lincoln had to some extent, but we definitely have today, is a kind of cultural view that it's morally wrong to do that that it's morally wrong to listen to the other person because they're just lying and propagandizing, which frankly is often true, and that there's no reason to try to understand them because they're hopeless and they're wedded to Donald Trump or they're wedded to Joe Biden or anybody you want to name. And the idea is that that there's no point even in having the discussion. I'm not going to persuade anybody. And in fact, it is naive and morally wrong of me even to try. I should push these people away. I should ostracize them. Um, Lincoln just had a different view of things than that, which grew out of the fact that we live in a republic. Uh, We live in a democracy with millions of people in it. It was a big country then. It's a far bigger country now. People are going to have very different viewpoints and backgrounds and experiences that they bring to the table. And from my point of view or Lincoln's point of view or anybody's point of view, a lot of them are going to be wrong. Maybe most of them are going to be wrong about something or many things. And yet Lincoln realized if we were going to have a republic that is a democracy, he needed to assemble a majority of those people to move the country at least a little way in the right direction. And that was his effort. And in this book, I mean, I have him dealing with people who own slaves, who believed in slavery and practiced it. I have him dealing with people who were only theoretically against slavery, but actually were very comfortable with the giant power structure that upheld slavery at that time. And I also have him dealing with people we would describe, I suppose, as progressives, people like Frederick Douglass or any number of other people throughout the book who, by our lights, had absolutely the right view of slavery, um, had no virtually no outdated opinions as we would, would see them, and found that Lincoln was uh, too moderate or too slow or purely racist or any number of things. And Lincoln was willing to meet with them sometimes be influenced by them, and other times try to co-opt them to the larger cause because they basically agreed on the problem and it was a matter of how to attack it. Mm. So, you know, one of the things I find so interesting about talking to you is that you are 
a true practitioner of journalism, and you have reported all over the world. I mean, we think of you as being the voice of all things considered, but you've actually, and that is, in fact, your probably your biggest claim to fame, I suppose, but but you've done basic reporting in in various continents and and all over the world. So what, you know, given that, what is journalism's role as you see it in preserving democracy or in dealing with democracy? What, you know, how do these things come together if they do? Well, I, I think that there is a resonance because I think my job, and thank you for, for your kind words about, about it, but I think that my job, if I do it right, is to be a reporter, is to learn things myself. And when I come back in the studio to continue being a reporter and ask genuine questions of people, not rhetorical questions, but things I would actually like explained, things I would like to know. Um, and this calls upon me to talk with a wide range of people, including inevitably many people that my audience is going to disagree with. And when I say my audience, I should be clear, uh, they are also across the political spectrum and have a very wide range of beliefs. So anybody I bring in, somebody is going to say that person is wildly wrong. Um, and I think it is my job to talk with them. And this has become somewhat controversial. You and I have talked about this in the past. Um, there is this belief, and I understand it, and there's not nothing to it, this belief that um, the news is basically propaganda and that anybody we put on is proselytizing their views. And if they're just a big liar or a faker or a propagandist or a racist or a hateful person or someone we dislike, um, then they just should not be heard from. The part about this that I agree is that people shouldn't just willfully lie all the time on the radio or on television or anywhere else. They should be called out and there should be context given so that the audience can understand when someone is telling a lie or what very often happens. They're saying something that is strictly speaking true, but is blown out of proportion or distorted or an error of omission or just a very particular view of the world that they're giving that doesn't take account of other views. We should give people context so they can understand when that sort of stuff is happening. But it is still my job to cover those people and track them because you need to know what the people you disagree with are doing. Mm -hmm. So do you think that that kind of context that we can bring when people may be lying or are likely to be lying, can that context exist in a live interview effectively? Or do we do better to pre-record and to surround what may be lies or propaganda with with factuality? I mean, how do you come down on that question? Oh, I mean, I would rather do the pre-recording when the news allows, when circumstances allow. They don't always because we're in the news business and people have to be fast and I do a live program and we do live interviews. In that live situation, my job is to be listening, to be careful, to be prepared, to push back and add context and so forth. But when I can pre-record, I have so many opportunities to add context, to interview a couple of other people, to go back into our archives and find some archival tape, to add some of my own writing. And I believe that this is helpful both for the audience and the guest. Um, never mind if they lie, if they make up something. What if they're just making a complicated point? 
that is easy to misunderstand. I can, in that pre-recorded version of the story, work really hard to make sure that the audience has the context just to understand what the heck they are trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about our divisions in this country, some of them obviously are very, very real and derive from very substantive, different ideas of what the country should be and often very incoherent views of what the country should be. But some of our differences are reflexive and they come from a failure to understand what the other person is truly saying and thinking about, um, and a presumption that you should not trust what the other person is saying. We have so many debates in this country that begin with somebody saying something unclear on live television, and then it gets shared on social media, and people begin reacting to the clip that maybe they didn't even watch. What they're actually reacting to is the label of the person, the identity of the person, and you're not really even understanding what it is they're saying. If you understood what they were trying to say, you might still find them profoundly wrong, but maybe you would at least recognize them as a human being. And maybe even if you feel you need to resist 95% of what they've said, maybe there's 5% of something you can work with from time to time. Even mm -hmm. if there isn't that 5%, you will at least have a clear idea of what your political opponent really meant, which makes it easier for you to frame arguments against it. So, you know, human nature probably hasn't changed very much from Lincoln's time, but, no. but certainly the state of the news media has. And I think you know that my podcast series looks at the question of journalism's role with democracy through the lens of two historic events. One is Watergate and the other is January 6th. So these mm. are roughly 50 years apart um, and both of them long after Lincoln's time, certainly. But I know that as a student of history, you know a lot about Watergate and we all know a lot about January 6th because we've just lived through it and covered it. So what, you know, what are the differences in in the news media at these different times? And how does that impact the issues we're talking about? Wow. Um, I think a lot about the parallels between the news media today and Lincoln's time. It seems so different. I mean, there wasn't any Twitter back then. There's no Twitter now, by the way. There's something called X. But in any case... Um, <laughs> no cable I news either. No, no cable news, nothing like that. And yet I find parallels in that things were rapidly accelerating at Lincoln's time as well. In Lincoln's lifetime... At the time of his birth, weekly newspapers were common and daily newspapers even were extremely rare. They were not nowhere, but they were very rare. As he grew up and went into his career, daily newspapers became extremely common. The telegraph was developed and demonstrated, and very rapidly in the 1840s, telegraph wires were spread across the country, instantaneous news. Railroads were developed and spread very rapidly across the country in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and that sped communications in many ways. People could travel to different parts of the country in hours or days where it might have taken weeks or months or maybe been impossible, depending on their circumstances. And newspapers were moving on those railroads as well. And as a result, you had fast-moving news cycles in a way that had never existed before in human history. 1844, when Samuel Morse demonstrated the telegraph with a line from Washington to Baltimore, 
newspaper reporter noted that this was the first time in human history that it was possible to know what was going on in a distant city over the horizon at the very moment that that was happening. It had not been possible before. And this, it seems to me, made political debate more difficult. There is in in Differ We Must a scene of a Republican state convention in 1856, and they're standing up the new Republican Party, which we should note was the anti-slavery party then. These were the progressive people then. The parties maybe have switched a little bit. Um, It was Lincoln's party. It was Lincoln's party, and he was helping to organize the party in Illinois, and they were having this state convention, and they wanted to have a moderate, centrist, inclusive anti-slavery message to build the maximum political support they could for this new uh, political organization. And it was very difficult because just at that very moment, they were being bombarded by incredibly extreme news, which arrived by daily newspaper, carried by telegraph, carried to this town, Bloomington, in the middle of, of Illinois, by the railroads. And they had to react instantly to this news. And it was part of the struggle. People in different parts of America were being forced to confront their differences with an urgency they had never before experienced. You had half the country that had abolished or largely abolished slavery, and half the country that had become ideologically uh, and economically wedded to more and more slavery. And at the beginning of the 1800s, it was possible for someone who opposed slavery or who was in a free state never to really experience it or never really to experience a black person and just not be forced to confront, not be forced to face what was going on. And suddenly it was possible for someone to escape from slavery and get on a train and go north and appear in their community. Suddenly it was possible for someone to print an anti-slavery newspaper and try to mail it to the South where they would consider it a dangerous publication and they would be trying to censor it in different ways. People were being forced to wrestle with their differences. And I think there is a parallel between then and now. That is part of what social media does, is that basically, I mean, Twitter, back when it was called Twitter, I mean, I don't know how it's working now, really, um, but but Twitter historically has driven a lot of traffic by figuring out who you are and whoever you are. Twitter and other such social media sites are effectively mechanisms for bringing you the single most offensive thing that somebody on the other side said today. Whoever you are, they will find the thing that is most offensive to you and get it to you. And that is a remarkably difficult thing for people to deal with. Um, Now, there are studies coming out saying that social media specifically has not necessarily increased political polarization. I'll accept those studies for what they are. But I think that the general increase in media and in partisan media has generally affected people's attitudes and made it harder to deal with each other. But I want to add one last thing, which is just that that can be good. I mean, in the context of slavery, it was good that people who maybe drifted along and didn't think very hard about slavery were suddenly forced to think hard about it. So there can be good things about it today, too. I have the feeling that you believe in your core being that we can, in America, despite our vast differences, that we actually can come together and we can talk to each other. So am I right about that? And if so, how does that happen? How can it happen when we are just on such 
very different pages and when there's so much lack of trust? Well, I, I think that we should set a modest goal. Uh, I'm not sure that we all can come together. I'm not even sure that we should or that we should want to because it's a democracy and a free society. We should have lots of different opinions. We should disagree about things. But if our goal is to assemble a majority of us who are in favor of democracy and this democratic experiment we're running and who are in favor of equality and our best definition of it that we can figure out and who are in favor of free debate, I think that that is possible and that would be a good thing. I think that Lincoln showed some of the very difficult, morally difficult choices that he made to try to move in that direction. And I think it is possible today. Do you think that we as journalists should be seen as standing for something? Is it okay for us to say that we believe in certain things or are we intended to be sort of neutral blank slates? Um, I want to reject the either or there. There was that concept once upon a time of a of a television newscaster being a voice from nowhere, meaning I don't have any particular background or, or anything. Um, I don't think that's realistic or possible or anything that I want to do. Like I am from somewhere. I grew up in Indiana. I grew up a certain way. I went to school in a certain place. I visited a lot of places in the world and I bring all of those perspectives and backgrounds to my journalism. I think that what I stand for, however, is an inquiry into the truth of things which requires me to be open-minded even when my private opinion might have concluded things. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, like I, I have political opinions, but I don't need to broadcast them. I don't think that they're terribly important if I do my job professionally, if I do my job well. I think that my duty is to be an intelligence agency for ordinary citizens so that they can keep track of their friends as well as their adversaries and just people and things that they're curious about. Um, you know, I don't think that I need to, like, proclaim my virtue all the time to say that I have the right opinions all the time. I think when journalists are told you must stand for something, that's the demand that's really being made of them. Show that you're a right-minded individual. Show that you're progressive or conservative or whatever it might be. Show that you have the proper opinions. Well, what about saying to journalists, uh, we expect you to be pro-democracy? Oh, Is that okay? Well, what about, what about pro-press rights? Oh, well, I mean, I, I would be in favor of those. And I suppose my background makes me naturally pro-democracy. It's funny. I mean, I'm thinking of a phrase that Lincoln said about slavery. He said he was naturally anti-slavery. He can't re couldn't recall a time that he'd ever been uh, ever felt any other way. I think that I'm naturally pro-democracy, having grown up in one and having learned to appreciate it for what it is. And my job as a citizen, as much as a journalist, is to help run the darn thing. So, yeah, I'm in favor of that. But you my mean to help run the darn thing? But let me slow you down a second or, sure. or stop you for a second. Yeah. When you, I love that. I love that idea that your your job is to help run the darn thing. Do you mean simply by being a citizen who votes or do you also mean by being a journalist who has a role? And if so, what's that role? 
I mean, both. And yeah, I mean, my job is to give people, um, I was about to say an unfiltered view of the world, but that's not quite right. My job is to give people a thoughtful view of the world and a well-rounded view of the particular issue that we're, we're looking at and to give people information that is useful in their lives. My fellow citizens should have information so that they can make sensible decisions for themselves. And uh, that is a particular role that I play um, that is, in a sense, like the role of a judge who is supposed to interpret the law regardless of their policy opinions. And we can talk about the controversies about whether they're doing it right now, but that's a thing. And the president's job is to execute certain laws Uh, And he will also, of course, or she someday perhaps will have political opinions, but they have certain duties. And I think if you're going to be a journalist, you have some duties to the facts, to the truth, to fairness, to a variety of perspectives and a variety of stories and an open mind. And I try to keep those things going as a journalist, whatever my personal opinion of a person or an issue might be. Sounds good to me. So how to what extent do you think America is in a democratic crisis right now. Do you Um, think that's the case? I think less so than maybe other people do because I've studied history. And I think that I have some understanding of how imperfect the system always is and how conflict and the clash of interests is the heart of it. Um, I mean, what's what's going on, what distresses us is, in fact, what democracy is. Um, at the same time, there are things that worry me, that, that trouble me. I never get used to the sheer number of political actors who don't want to answer a question, who have learned, in fact, have been trained in many cases, that it's a bad idea ever to answer a question, that regardless of the question that's asked, just repeat your talking point, do it again and again and again with spectacular discipline. Um, I think that is bad for democracy, bad for the public, and often bad for the individual following that advice. Um, I find it troubling when I realize that you're talk- I'm talking to ordinary voters, and many of them have learned these same techniques, you know, don't accept the Don't question. Don't answer the question. Do, just say right. something else. Say something else or say the question is biased or start start telling the person who asked you the question what their motives are for asking it rather than um uh, rather than dealing with the dealing with the issue. I think that people could be both in and out of office a little more forthright um and a little more searching about what is going on. Um I would like to see a little more consensus about what democracy is in fact supposed to be and what the basic rules are. It would be nice to see a little bit less gamesmanship when it comes to congressional districting and and issues like that. And at the same time, I am just kind of conscious that it's always messy. It's always been messy. It's actually supposed to be messy. And if it wasn't messy, it wouldn't be a republic. Mm. Well, that seems cheering, although I worry about uh, a prospective president who has made it clear, and I'm talking about Donald Trump, who could become president again. It's perfectly plausible, who has said up front that he will change the rules so that, you know, for example, uh, federal officials are much more willing to do the bidding of the president. In other words, to kind of knock away some of the Democratic 
norms and guardrails that that keep us going. I mean, that I wonder if journalists are getting across the high stakes. Uh, I know they're they're unwilling or, or you know, it runs against the grain to to say we're we're on one side or the other. But if one side is very anti-democratic, how can we square that circle? Um, it's so cool that you raised this, Margaret, because as you know, I was late for our appointment coming to you. And the reason that I was late was that I was finishing up an edit on a story about this, about mm. uh, Republican efforts to reshape the federal bureaucracy, make it easier to fire senior bureaucrats, um, and pursue an idea that's much older than Donald Trump. To Donald Trump, this is like wiping out the deep state, as he would call it. But to other conservatives or to conservatives, I'm not sure if Trump is really conservative. Um, to conservatives, there is an administrative state, which is a variety of independent or semi-independent or notionally independent agencies that make their own decisions and aren't always that responsive to what any given president wants. That is an interesting argument about democracy. Who is supposed to have uh, the power? The one president who was elected or these various people who were hired by many presidents over a period of time. It seems to me pretty clear, and I'm comfortable just stating the history, that our democracy has evolved in such a way that there's never, no one person ever has the power, all the power. No one person is ever supposed should to not, have. Should not. Well, I mean, they, they, they never have. And and uh, the, also that you're, 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 this project is unfolding over time. Um, Yes, you're the president who got elected last year or last week. But there were presidents before you who also did things. And you have to respond and be responsive to the structures that they set up. Yes, you're the president and there's a Congress that just got elected, but there have also been many Congresses before that have done many things. This can be very frustrating. It has been frustrating for presidents of both political parties that they get into office and discover they're not truly in charge. But that is also the way, up to a point, that the system is supposed to work. Even the person who just won the election doesn't get all the power. And the Constitution says that, and a lot of traditions and laws that have been passed since the Constitution have added to and reinforced that. All right. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's good to hear your point of view. I, I find it uh, relatively optimistic uh and you certainly have the historical perspective that that puts it into context so um i will conclude just by asking you one more question sure. which is what what would your call to action be for uh american citizens at this time particularly with their consumption of news how what would you encourage what would you ask them to do avoid snap judgments about anything wait a moment Whatever the bit of breaking news is that's come into your alerts or into your social media feed or onto the front page of your paper, take a minute to think through what's going on. Try to understand what the person who's saying the outrageous thing really meant. And just reserve judgment, even for a minute, if not an hour, and be aware that whatever that story is, more information is likely to come, and someone may be trying to manipulate you by trying to get you to respond instantly. Sounds like a, a wise piece of advice. And I want to thank you, Steve, very much for coming on the podcast. And I heartily recommend Differ We Must, 
How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America, uh, which publishes in early October. Well worth your read, particularly at this time, which has so many interesting reflections of, of Lincoln's time. So thank you very much, Steve. Margaret, thanks so much. I've always admired your work, and it's great to talk with you here. I'm so pleased to have had Steve Inskeep as my guest today. I think our discussion of what the role of a journalist is in a situation like the one we find ourselves today, in which there are actually candidates for office and people in government and people who would be in government who oppose democracy. And, you know, he still, I think, believes that we can bridge those gaps. And I found that interesting. I think he believes that a little bit more than I do. And uh, it's good to hear it. He also has a more optimistic view, I think you heard, about whether America is in a deep crisis than I have. So it's good to talk with someone who perhaps brings a little bit more optimism to the fore. And certainly Steve is someone who deeply believes in the role of a journalist in a democracy and the importance of truth-telling the importance, for example, as we talk about, of having the ability to pre-record interviews so that you can bring more context and more fact-checking to the forefront. So I really appreciate the discussion. I recommend his book, Differ We Must, and I hope you enjoyed it too. In addition to the podcast, you can find the full American Crisis Experience on my Substack. Margaret Sullivan at Substack.com. Production services for American Crisis are provided by Voltage. It's produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Tyler Morissette. The music for this show was composed by Crosstown Traffic. This is American Crisis. I'm Margaret Sullivan. Thanks for listening.